there's a big difference if you say, but I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, around $500 as opposed to it's $500. You say it with confidence because you believe it. People will sense when you don't have the confidence in your own pricing. Today's episode is sponsored by the Artist Incubator. Want to double your art sales? I can show you how. Go to shulmanart.com forward slash B-I-Z to apply for a free profit planning session and learn more about working with me. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hi, passion makers. It's Miriam Shulman, Chief Inspiration Officer and your host. You're listening to episode 128. I'm so grateful that you're here. Today, we're talking all about creative careers. In this episode, you'll discover how to be smart about your hustle, why the genius is in the edit, and how to create a long-lasting career on your own terms. Today's guest began his career as a fashion designer. He was chosen one of the top 10 designers in the U.S., He switched careers to film and video production. He directed award-winning commercials, documentaries, and web content around the world for clients such as Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, and Tiffany. His book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, is an Amazon bestseller, and it's based on the class he teaches at Parsons School of Design. He's been a featured speaker on creating a brand and creativity at Warden, Princeton, NYU, North Carolina State, and Minnesota State. He graduated with honors from University of Wisconsin, that's my mother's alma mater, with degrees in philosophy and psychology. Please welcome to the Inspiration Place, Jeffrey Madoff. Well, hey, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on, Miriam. I want to know why you think the wrestling team prepared you for a life in the film business. Also, what was your weight class? (laughs) Well, in high school, it was 120 and in college, it was 123. Oh, There's all kinds of sports metaphors in business all the time, and most of them are stupid. But this one, it's like chess. You know, when you're doing collegiate wrestling or Olympic wrestling, And what that means is you have to think in series, you have to think ahead, you have to be a couple moves ahead of your opponent, anticipating what obstacles are going to be set up and learning how to either pivot quickly, which is really important, or exhausting yourself, pushing against resistance that you're not going to get past. Hmm. So in fact, you know, wrestling did help with a certain way of thinking about things because you don't want to exhaust yourself pointlessly. And if you can move quickly and surprise the other person, you can keep the match going. It did have actually some some real story value. I love that. I think I mentioned to you earlier, I am a wrestling mom. My NYU son, well, he's not wrestling because of COVID. He was wrestling in high school and then part most of college he wrestled as well. And that's he loved it because exactly what you said, he felt like it was physical mental chess. Yeah. And he right. loved that intellectual aspect of it. 
But I decided I wasn't going to be a professional wrestler. (laughs) So what race class was your son, by the way? Well, I I know it's different in college as in high school. It was it was something like 138. And basically my weight tended to track his. So when he was cutting weight and I looked much better. Yeah, when he was like trying to keep his weight down, it definitely helped me stay more mindful of what I was eating as well. Yeah, and there is a discipline that yeah. goes along with all of that. And you also have to be healthy, yeah, you know, because yeah. you can lose weight and lose strength. That applies too, is that you want to maintain your health so that no matter what you're doing, whether you're a painter or a filmmaker or whatever, it's being able to perform and being optimal in your performance which means take care of your primary asset, which is yourself. And your energy, taking care of your energy levels. Yes. Yes. So it's even more important than managing your time is managing your energy. Yeah. You know, sometimes people say, oh, if I only had more time, I could do whatever. And I say, no, that's that's a lie because you have fixed energy. And even if you had five more hours, you still wouldn't be able to do it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. When, when the car is out of gas, it yeah. doesn't matter if you have more time to get to your destination. Exactly. It's not going to be rolling there. Exactly. Right. Okay. So I think that leads us into the next question about being smart about your hustle. What does that mean to you? Well, what it means is to be smart about what it is that you're doing. So how do you apply your time? How do you apply your energy? And how do you approach what it is you're doing in an intelligent way? So that means that you need to know what's the competitive landscape around what you're doing. You know, what are the things that you can do that can help bring a successful result? So you got to think about what you're doing. You have to think about the context, which is really important in terms of what it is you're doing. If you're writing a book, you want to know that, you know, well, how do I get the book in front of the eyes of the audience that I hope to reach? Same thing with painting. Who is going to buy your paintings? You want to put those things in front of the right audience. And so being smart about your hustle is really about being smart about how you approach your business and being strategic in the way that you think about it. Yeah. And I don't know what your opinion is about this, but I'm always coaching my clients about the idea of your price has to be high enough so that you don't run out of gas also. Because like I'll speak to a client and I'll say, okay, how much are you selling your art for? And she'll say $300. I said, okay, how long does it take you to paint that? And she said, a week. I said, okay. So if you sold every single painting that you make, you will spend all your time to make $15,000. Is that what you want? To really think about if you were as successful as you want to be, will you still be where you need to be? Are you pricing things high enough? The value of, of reaching a luxury market rather than trying to be the Kmart of artists. Was there a question in what I just said? It sounded more like a sermon. <laughs> well, I'm actually in the congregation of that sermon. Because awesome. Okay. Take it away. Take it away. <laughs> well, and the reason is, is because if you decide to make your living with your painting or with whatever creative career that you're pursuing, there's a business aspect to it. And if you somehow think that being creative is somehow precious and won't be tainted by business, the question that you bring up is, okay, if you're selling your paintings for $300, how much is your rent? How much is your phone? How much is your are your uh, streaming services? How much do you go through socially each month? 
you know, what's your living overhead? Because if you're hoping to make a living, you've got to exceed your expenses and what your revenues are. That's whether you're a lawyer or a dentist or an artist or whatever it is you're doing. So those are smart questions to ask. And I think a lot of people don't ask that. And I think creative people are in a particular bind about that because they're often so thrilled when somebody buys their work and they aren't thinking about the fact I'm not going to make a living this way. <laughs> you know, I can't even pay my rent. So unless it's a hobby and you don't care and that just the acknowledgement that somebody's willing to pay anything for what you do is fine, you have to approach it like a business. I know there's a portion of my audience who just wants to paint for fun and that's fine as long as you're honest about what you're doing. But they'll say to me, oh, no one's going to pay that for my art. If we take an example from the fashion industry, I was just looking at this yesterday. What do you price a black t-shirt at? Well, you know, what's really interesting is when you are in the fashion business, for instance, and you can buy a black t-shirt for 12 bucks, you can buy a black t-shirt for $450, you know, and you could even spend more than that. So the question is, at a certain point, if you lay all those black t-shirts out and you've got this price spectrum from $12 to $500, you know, at a certain point, not even in the middle yet, you're going to be hard pressed to know what the difference is if the tags are taken out. Yeah. They're all cotton. They all have, you know, but some have a higher quality, higher thread count. But what really creates the notion of perceived value is the brand. So if you see that it's Prada or if it's Gucci, you know, you're going to think that's going to be on the more expensive end of things. You know, if you're looking at Champion or Hanes or something like that, you expect it to be on the lower end of things, you know, because those aren't status brands. And so the brand has a lot to do with it. And that's also true in the art world. Absolutely. So first of all, I love the numbers you threw out because that was exactly what my research showed me yesterday. I said, okay. I went on Neiman Marcus and I went on Bergdorf Goodman's, two very high-end sites, and I found a woman's t-shirt on Bergdorf's for $120, just plain black. And on Neiman Marcus, there was a men's t-shirt for $455. Men's. Is it Givenchy? Is that how you say it? Givenchy. Oh, thank you for helping me out there. So why is that one... $455. Why are people willing to pay that? Because it's not like Neiman Marcus has this fantasy that somebody's going to want to pay that. Obviously, they know who their buyer is and what they pay for things. That is the market for that t shirt. Well, that's right. You know, it's it's funny. I was at a store in New York, Zabar's, that you probably know. I love Zabar's. It's a great place and had to buy a, a new tea kettle. They had like a whole shelf full of them. I was with a good friend of mine and we're looking and said, oh, this one looks really cool. And wow, this one is really neat looking and this and this. And the price difference was from like $25, again, up to about $450. And he said, Jeff, remember, it's about boiling water. <laughs> They'll all do that. <laughs> you know, well, so- well, the black t-shirt is essentially an undershirt. Exactly. Well, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Thing. It's like... But it's a perception of value. Take it to something that everybody understands. There's an emotional tie to a brand. 
So if you're in love with Prada or Ralph Lauren or Givenchy, you know, you're going to be willing to pay more for that. And that goes into every area. So like nobody's really passionate about buying a Dell computer, but they are passionate about buying the newest Apple computer. Mm -hmm. Brands add a perception of value. And it's the same thing in the art world. If you're a known artist, if your market price has been established, people anticipate that they're going to pay more for you. Yeah. What something is worth, it's not like there's an intrinsic value because the threads that they're using that $450 t-shirt, you know, are a hundred times more expensive than the other, but the advertising and the marketing and all those things that built that brand also figure into the price. And the venue matters. Absolutely. Because you could take that same $455 designer t-shirt, but if I saw it at a flea market, I'm not paying more than $15 for it. There's like that trust factor. There is also the concept of sometimes what you're buying for some people, it's not the thing. It's the souvenir of the experience. Mm -hmm. That's right. It is the context. You know, if you saw a painting at a craft fair, you're not going to think that you're going to pay nearly as much as if you had seen a painting in a gallery. Correct. You know, so context has a lot to do with it. So if you're shopping at a, at a good store, and by the way, these things break down as you're doing, we're doing more and more buying online. So establishing brand value online for new companies has to do with everything in terms of how they position themselves. Cause it's not like you're going into a place that you're immersed in the displays and they offer you a cup of coffee and it's a whole different kind of experience more towards a luxury experience when you go into those stores. And so online, where especially during COVID, online shopping has gone up so tremendously, you need to create or show your things in an environment that has that perceived value. And so I I think it's really interesting because that's what makes something worth something. You know, I do an an exercise in my class and I put up a, a bottled water you know, Poland Spring, and I put it up on the screen and I said to the students, so how much is this worth? Say a dollar, dollar fifty. Said, okay, so it's worth a dollar to a dollar fifty, that bottle of Poland Spring. Well, we're now in the desert. Yeah. And I've got the only bottle of water around. That bottle of water is the only thing that separates you from dying. Would you pay 500 for it? Would you pay 5,000 for it? Would you pay 10000 for it? How much is it worth then? And the circumstance and the context define that. What something is worth, you have to define by the context it's in and by the circumstances. It's the transformation about what it says about them, that I'm a person who buys $455 t-shirts. Right. That says something about me if, if I was the type of person who did that, but I tend not to. So. Also in the art market, people feel that way too. I've seen it happen with collectors. They want to see themselves as the kind of person who invests in original art. Like I've seen like a woman buy an original painting, a $400 original painting for her niece because she wanted to see herself as the aunt who buys original art for her niece. That's how she wants to perceive herself. So it's about like her own self-concept was defined by her purchase. 
in my class, I had a, a guest, a wonderful painter, wonderful person, Zaria Foreman. Zaria's work is incredible. And about 10 years ago was the first time she sold a painting, 10 or 12 years ago. I said, do you remember what it was like when you sold your first painting? And she said, well, first of all, figuring, and I said, how did you determine the price? How did you determine what you would charge for? And she said, I wanted to paint larger scale. And so my canvases were like four by six feet. There was a person who was interested in my work. Honestly, I had no idea what to charge. And then I went around to some stores and some galleries and looked at things around that size by unknown artists. So I decided that I would sell it. I would ask for $5,000. I said, uh, and so how did you feel telling that person the price? She said, I was scared to death Mm. because she might've thought I was crazy. What are you nuts? Nobody knows who you are. I'll give you $500 for it, not $5,000. But I had looked at enough stuff out there to know the landscape of, well, this is kind of in better stores, what unknown artists sell for doing things around that size, you know, an over the couch painting. Yeah. I said, so what did you do? She said, well, I told her the price. And I said, what did that person, how they react? She said, they bought it. And I said, that's, that's great. So now you established a baseline for your work because that's also what collectors do, right? They yeah. also determine market. Yeah. I said, just out of curiosity, Zaria, what would be the cost of that painting now, 12 years later? And she smiled and said, $150,000. Oh, wow. That's what her art's selling for now. That's awesome. But everybody is, or not everybody, but almost everybody is scared to death to name the price because they want to make the sale. They haven't established a solid value yet for their work. I would say you can always come down in your price, but nobody's going to offer you more than you're asking. Yeah, you can't go further than your dream, basically. It's like, this is, if you limit yourself that way. It's such a great story. I can't tell you how many artists I know who say to themselves, I can't ask that because I'm just starting out, which is a lie. We get to decide what, what our value is. You know, sometimes when I was in the fashion business, I had these four shirts off to the side and people say, now what are those? And I said, well, those are very special. What makes them special? And I said, well, they're, they're $5,000 a piece. I said, $5,000? Why do they cost that much? And I said, well, I figured I wouldn't have, wouldn't have to sell that many if I could sell them at that price. And so that would get a laugh. And of course, I never sold them. Nobody ever bought yeah. them. But you know, the funny thing was there was a certain psychology reach because when they saw that my actual price was way, 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 way lower than that, you know, it didn't seem so expensive anymore. Yeah. There's two sales that go on. And I think this is uh, interesting for anybody who's placing a price on original work. In a sense, you set it, which is first you have to sell yourself, you know, and you have to be confident in what the value is that you're putting something out there for. Because if there's a big difference, if you say, well, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, around $500 as opposed to it's $500. Mm-hmm. And you say it with confidence because you believe it. People will sense when you don't have the confidence in your own pricing. And especially when it's something like art and you know that the person really wants to sell it, you know, the most powerful thing you can do is say no. That means you establish a value. And of course, you can't be delusional like I was with the 
shirts that were so expensive, all those actually. Even with Zaria, she didn't ask a hundred thousand for her first painting. Like that's That's right. Delusional. That's right. That's right. But you know, it is about selling yourself first so you can sell to that potential collector in a way that there's a confidence behind that sale. Hey, by the way, I wanted to make sure that you knew that as we're recording this in early 2021, there are two spots open inside the Artist Incubator Mastermind. If you're lacking a solid strategy or a winning mindset, and if you're disappointed with your current art sales, I can help you learn how to make more money from your art. If you've been listening to this podcast and you found my tips helpful, maybe it's time to take the next logical step and work with me on a deeper level. The incubator program is for emerging and professional artists who are serious about working on the business side to make more money. There's no fee or commitment to apply. And those who qualify get a free strategy call with me. Just go to shulmanart.com forward slash B-I-Z. Now back to the show. All right, we're going to jump topics. One of them was, why is the genius in the edit? Now, somebody who has made a career in film and fashion, I'm sure that that's something that's close to your heart. It is. And it comes through in fashion. It comes through in film. It comes through in the writing for the play that I'm doing, even the book that I wrote. And it comes through in the paintings that you do. Editing, I believe, is one of the most powerful parts of the creative process. And the reason is, is that's where everything takes shape. And that's where you really determine, for instance, when I was writing the play, I interviewed, it's based on an actual person, Lloyd Price, who was like one of the cornerstone artists of rock and roll. First, I had to decide, since I had such a wealth of information, and I interviewed him for like 28 hours. So I have hundreds of pages of transcripts from the interviews and so on. I had to determine, okay, what's a story I'm going to tell? right? Yeah. And so that's an edit right there. And then when I focus on what's the story I'm going to tell, it's how I'm going to tell it. Gradually, everything is shaping what that story is going to be. Michelangelo was asked, you know, how do you take a block of marble and create David? And he said, I cut away everything that doesn't look like David. That's kind of what you do in any art form. You take away what's not necessary. I can give you a real life example of this. And this is from the play. We were doing our first table read with the actors. There's a scene that takes place in Australia and it's very funny. And as the actors are reading it, they're cracking up and they're enjoying the scene and they're laughing. And I'm sitting there thinking something's not right. And so we take a break and I said to the director, Sheldon Epps, what do you think of the Australia scene? And he said, well, we know it's funny. Everybody was laughing. It's interesting. But is it essential? Hmm. I said, what do you mean, is it essential? And he said, does it either reveal more about the character or move the plot forward? And I said, no. And he said, then it's not essential. Well, It really hit. And I took those five pages out. He was absolutely correct. So everything to me is kind of about the velocity of the work. And so when you're painting, what do you include in the frame? What's your composition? What don't you? How many colors do you use? What do you put in the painting? Because we all hear that phrase. It's also as important what you take, what you don't put in. What do you leave out? Yeah. 
I think that that guide, whether you're a painter, whether you're a musician, whether you're writing a book or a play, that notion of is it essential and asking yourself that all the time because it all happens in the edit. Yeah, that's a great question. The other question I like to ask to apply it, the edit slightly differently, I get asked often by the artist who I coach, what do they do with older work that hasn't sold? Do I put it on sale? <laughs> the answer is always no, by the way. My answer to them is always, do you still believe in this art? Do you still believe in it? And that is something that really good artists ask themselves because when we look at Monet, when we look at Van Gogh and in the museums, we're not seeing everything they've ever painted. We're seeing right. the art after they've, Van Gogh would paint over canvas three times. We know this. We know this. Monet destroyed a lot of his artwork at the end of his life. So we're looking at what they still believed in and they didn't edit out of their portfolio or their, what do you call the? Their over, over of work. Yes. Thank you for helping me with the hard words today. <laughs> so yeah, that's another way that the edit definitely shows up. What do you, what do you believe in? It's not hang on and hoard everything in your life. When I was designing clothes and you put together a collection, I'll give you a better example. Ralph Lauren, who you know, I've worked with for so many years, when he puts together a collection, there may be a really great item but it doesn't fit in with the theme of the collection. Yeah. Is it essential in terms of telling the story that he wanted to tell? The answer, no. So it doesn't go in. Yeah. You know, when you're an established artist gallery and you're doing a show and you're represented by a particular gallery, they're going to determine what goes on the walls yeah. in terms of your show and what things aren't shown yet. And it's not always a question of like good work, bad work. I believe in this work. I don't believe in this work. It's also, like you said, how does this fit into the collection? When I would go to an art festival, if you're showing work from, and your work is evolving or you're experimenting, you don't want to mix everything you've ever painted because it's very confusing to collectors to come in and say, okay, there's a watercolor, there's a collage, there's something else. It's very confusing for them. So it needs to be a tightly curated show the same way as if you were walking into a museum, they generally would not put everything that Picasso ever did in one show. It would be Picasso's nudes or Picasso's sculptures or Matisse's cutouts. They don't mix things together. It's like it has a theme and there's like a story that pulls everything together. That's right. And by the way, the same thing happens if you're a chef and you're put in your at a restaurant and you're putting the menu together. You know, it's in all things. And that's what I find so interesting is that that applies there. It applies if you're recording an album of music. I work with many musicians and have friends that are musicians and it's all the same thought process. You know, I'm trying to tell a particular story here. And I love this, but it doesn't fit. Asking that question and knowing how to answer it is a sign of gaining maturity in your art. Oh, yeah. If you go to a restaurant, like you said, and you can have everything from the Greek salad to the Chinese food. Well, that's a diner. <laughs> you know, and that's a very different price model. So what we were talking about at the beginning, a very different brand than if you go into 
La Bernadette. I don't know. What's a really good restaurant in New York City? If you go oh, into La Bernadette is, is known for their seafood. Very niche, very curated. You know what to expect. You're not going to go there for hamburgers. <laughs> That's right. Although I'm always amazed when I go to those diners that have the seven page menus that are <laughs> laminated. I love it. They have these technicolor pictures of the food, you know, so you don't even have to really be able to speak to order. You can just point to it. Yeah. And I'm thinking in that little kitchen, you turn out everything from lobster, you know, to chow mein to everything in between. Yeah. I think there's an SNL skit, like don't order lobster in a diner or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Then the lobster come, you know, the guy comes out in a lobster costume. (laughs) And then the other joker reminds me of Ross Chast, the cartoonist. She says, grilled cheese is always safe. <laughs> so she like, doesn't venture off of that because you're not sure. So I usually have that philosophy when I eat at a diner. Like It should be something simple. Eggs, something you recognize easily. It's very yes. simple. Adventure eating is for the higher end restaurants. <laughs> All right. So I would just want to move on down. You've interviewed a lot of guests in both your in your class and in your book. You told me to throw in a hardball question. This is it. What insight did you learn from any of your guests that you found the most surprising? I don't think that I have been surprised as much as happy that they're being candid about how things go. A lot of people, you know, talk about what they do, especially when they're successful, as if they had no insecurities and they had nothing to overcome. And it was this hockey stick yeah. growth, you know, the graph of growth. So I'm always really gratified when people speak the truth because we all know it's not easy. You know, when you're trying to make a living with your ideas, it's difficult. You know, especially nowadays, you know, on social media, people try to present perfect lives. Mm-hmm. Perfect lives don't exist. But, you know, what's interesting, and clearly you do it too, is we're having a conversation. It happens to be a podcast, but we're having a conversation about things and what pops into your mind or what references pop into mind, and we're bouncing back and forth and all of that. You know, I think that when you have real conversation and you don't try to somehow gloss over the difficulties that things can be, there are threads that go through all the guests. And I would say the most prevalent common thread is perseverance. Yeah. You have to keep at it. And it's it's easy to start a business, harder to build it, and the most difficult to sustain it. I'm fortunate in that in vetting the people that I invite to the class or I do interviews with, I want to make sure that I'm not going to get some canned responses. Mm-hmm. I really want to get something that's going to be useful and frankly that I can learn from too. Yeah. What I've also learned aside from the perseverance is that all businesses are the same, the protocols that you go through in the business. And that's why I threw in the thing about the menu. People might not think about it, but you know, you're editing a menu. You know, I've had great chef Hillary Sterling, one of my favorite restaurants in New York, Vicks New York. And you know, in putting together her menu, I mean, that's the story she's telling. It all relates to storytelling. And that's the story she's telling with the menu. So she leaves out much more than she puts in, but it all works together. And I think as you get better at your art 
as you get better at what you do, you learn how to distill those things much quicker. Yeah, I think you get a lot more, in a sense, efficient with your art because you aren't stopped and stumped by the things that did before. One of my clients asked me, oh, you make everything, you know, look so good, but tell us about a struggle you've had and how you overcame it. It was a hard question for me to answer, not because I haven't had struggles, but I don't see them that way. I see them as challenges. So it's like a different point of view when something is is hard. It's just the way I've framed it in my mind. Do you feel that way too, Jeffrey, about your work? I do. It's funny. The obstacles oftentimes are more to do with client behavior and what you have to do to get certain approvals and things done when you're dealing with certain people. And that could also be a challenge. But, you know, to me, I guess I look at most things as challenges, not obstacles, because challenges are about how do you figure out how to overcome them? Yeah. I think that it's an obstacle if it stops you. Right. You you hit a brick wall and I'm more apt to try to figure out, so how can I go over, under, around, or through this? Because I believe in the end that I am seeking. So I got to figure out a way around it. So to me, it is kind of more of a challenge. Well, how are you going to get past this part? Yeah. To bring it all home, unless your back is on the mat with your shoulders pinned down, do you still have a chance to like make a move and change the direction? That's right. And I do think that it's important to be open to hearing, you know, all of my work is collaborative other than when I'm sitting there alone writing, but the rewriting and the editing as a result of collaboration. Oh, absolutely. And my film crews, it's collaboration. And so I think it's also with clients, you need to listen because everybody wants to feel heard. Yeah. You need to listen and to be open. You know, a lot of times what I thought was a really good idea became a much better idea as a result of the input of others. Right, I fully agree with that. That's why I love commissioned work. But I don't remember if I shared with you, I'm, I'm writing a book and I was speaking with an agent recently. I haven't, I haven't been signed by her yet, but she was giving me feedback on what she thought. And it's really helping me shape the direction of the book. And it wasn't so much that I'm trying to please this one person who may or may not be my agent. But like you said, just the collaboration of hearing feedback on something that I've been working on by myself was so valuable to understand how somebody else sees your art or your work, whatever that art or work happens to be. And I think that's a critical thing, by the way, is how do you take getting, whether you call them notes or mm. criticism yeah. or whatever. For me, and I, I'm curious if it's the same for you, For me, if somebody is giving me a note that resonates with me and really kind of echoes a hesitancy I had, but didn't really confront, you know, I hear it and I feel it and I can act on it. And if it's something that just is coming out of a place that I just don't relate to at all, it's like, you know, that's their opinion. Yeah. I don't even get into it. It's like the Brene Brown, who gets a seat at your table, at your board of directors? Does their opinion even matter to you? So like I said, it's not about pleasing this particular person. It was because what she said That's right. made sense. And a yeah. part of me already knew it, yeah. but didn't acknowledge it. Right. Like you said with your play, like those five pages, you knew what the truth was already and you needed the confirmation from the director. That's right really good creative collaborations are the result 
of listening mm. and considering these other ideas. And I have such a rich collaboration with the people I'm working with on the play because the agreement that we all have is that, first of all, I have a no asshole rule. <laughs> you can't be mean. You can't be difficult to deal with. You can have strong opinions. I have strong opinions, but everything has to be done out of not only respect, but sharing the same goal of putting the best possible work out there. There are some people that just need to put their thumbprints on everything mm. just because they're so insecure that they have to put their thumbprints on everything. And there are others who are generous of spirit and whose whole satisfaction comes from the fulfillment of jointly creating a great piece of work. And those are the people that I like working with because they take pride in their work, but they are open to other ideas that could maybe even make it better. And I think that's really important. All right. So I think this is a beautiful place to wrap up. So I just want to let everyone know Creative Careers Making a Living with Your Ideas by Jeffrey Madoff is available Amazon and stores. We'll make sure to post a link to that in the show notes, which you'll be able to find at shulmanart.com forward slash 128. Don't forget, if you like this episode, then please check out the Artist Incubator. It's my private coaching program for emerging and professional artists who want to make more sales and take their current art business to the next level. It's by application only. To apply, go to shulmanart.com forward slash B-I-Z, B as in boy, I as in ice cream, Z or Z, whatever, wherever you are in the world, as in zebra. If you qualify, then we'll talk. All right, Jeffrey, do you have any last words for my listeners before we call this podcast complete? One of the questions that I ask all of my guests is define success and what does success mean to you and what does it look like to you? A lot of people don't ask themselves that question and it doesn't mean that the answer is carved in stone, but what is fulfilling to you and know why you're doing what you're doing because you are going to hit some big challenges. There are going to be times that are really difficult. And in order to keep going, it's what we were talking about earlier, there needs to be perseverance because it's not easy. You're going to hit hard times. So I think it's really important to remember why you are doing what you're doing in the first place. And I think it's important to revisit that so that it always stays fresh and keeps you motivated even through those hard times. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much for being with me here today. All right, everyone. I'll see you the same time, same place next week. Stay inspired. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course, on shulmanart.com. 